I had lunch this past week at Chipotle. By the way, that was really great. Uh, I could argue, I could make a debate, though, between uh, Chipotle and Moe's and Cadoba, which one is the best, but that, we'll, we'll save that for another Sunday. But uh, I had lunch with a guy at Chipotle this past week. He's about, he, this guy's around 30, uh, around 30 years, of, uh, years old, something like that. And he, and he had something very insightful to say, I thought, about his generation. And he said, he said that his generation is a very lonely generation, and he attributed it, it to this. He said that as much as this generation, his generation, longs for diversity, a few people have ever experienced it. And here's why. He says, if you think about it, Everything for his generation is customizable. Everything. It's like they can customize their music playlists. Um, If you go to Netflix and and watch it, it will actually customize uh, recommendations for you based on on, on your viewing habits. Uh, They can customize their computer screens. They can customize their ringtones. They can customize the earbuds that they listen to their music on. They can customize, of course, all the content on their phone. And... In spite of how much they talk about longing for diversity, they never really have to experience diversity because everything is suited for them and for their tastes. And I thought that was an interesting observation. And that has a ton of implications for how you build community in the context of a church among that generation. But but since he said that, it's had me thinking about the implications of customization on spirituality in our culture as a whole. Because look, if we're honest, I'm not just picking on that generation this morning. I'm just saying that if we're honest... It's not just his generation, it's every generation alive today has gotten used to this idea of customization. We all are that way. I mean, we, everything's customized for all of us, really. Now, some of us know that there was a day and age where you actually had to listen to other people on a party telephone line, uh, right? But uh, we have all gotten used to the idea of customization, which made me think, is it any wonder, to, that, that, is it any wonder that today people, uh, perhaps more than any other generation, approach spirituality with a build-your-own-God kind of mentality? In other words, we want to customize God to make him just whoever I want him uh, to be. Right, and that's you hear that all the time from people. You see, people say, "Well, my God is all loving," and then some people say, "Well, my God's a woman," and then some people say, "My God's all forgiving." My God hates gays. My God is pro-gay. My God is Republican. My God is a Democrat. My God is white. My God is black. My God is a Colts fan, <laughs> which is really the most ridiculous thing because we know he's a Cowboys fan. So I don't, you know, and on and on and on it goes. People customize. Uh, People want to customize their God. And if you've been with us throughout this series that we've been in, uh, the gospel in the last place that you would expect to find it is the name of the series. If you've been paying attention, among other things, I think you've probably noticed that you cannot build God to suit. You cannot customize God. You cannot make him who you want him uh, to be. You have to take him as he is. Uh, Because he's above your likes and he's above your dislikes. And really, I think what we've been seeing in this series, among other things, is that it really doesn't matter what you think about God. It only matters what he thinks about you. And if you haven't noticed that already, you're probably going to really notice it today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the very last chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. This is the end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40. Now, it is not the last day of the series because we'll, we've got one more week in this series. We're not going to finish it until next week. 
Because there is one last passage that I want to show you, and then we'll be done. For those of you who've been longing for us to be done, uh, next week we will actually be done with this series. So we're going to pick up uh, the reading today. Exodus chapter 40, and I want to start reading at verse 20, and we're going to read this. Uh, we're going to read quite a few verses all at once here today. Exodus chapter 20, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 20. He, Moses, took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wow, that's a lot of detail, isn't it? About setting up the tabernacle. The tabernacle, by the way, was, was kind of, you know, the, the people of Israel are in the wilderness right now. They're, they're, they're a moving nomadic people at this point in time. And so the tabernacle is sort of a portable temple that they can, they can carry with them. They, they can tear it down and then bring it with them along the, along the, along the way. Later on, they will have a permanent temple, but the tabernacle is kind of a portable version of the temple. Actually, you know, you you read all that and you're like, man, that's a lot of detail. But actually, it it really starts back in chapter 25, so 15 chapters basically about the tabernacle and and, and how it should be built and uh, what it should be made of and uh, other instructions about the order of worship um, for Israel as they enter this tabernacle. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible, like from the book of Genesis uh, through, uh, you probably got to this point and skipped over it because it's just a lot of detail. And I would not blame you if that's, you know, if you were like, yeah, I kind of got the point. Let's get back to some action, you know, because it gets kind of old and kind of long and kind of boring. But if, if you think that all the detail is pointless, you're missing the whole point of the book of Exodus. And unless you understand the significance of the tabernacle, you really don't understand the point of the whole book of Exodus. Because the story of the book of Exodus starts, you guys will remember, those of you who've been with us throughout the series, the story starts in slavery, but it's not completed until it gets here to worship. Because the point of the book of Exodus is that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. That's the whole point of the book of Exodus. Everyone, even atheists, put their hope in. Everybody gets their identity from something. Everybody, every human being. Okay? 
and whatever you worship, you serve. Okay, whatever you worship, you serve. If that's not God, if there's anything else more important or more central in your life than God, then you're controlled by it. You're a slave to it. And it's not until God becomes the most important central thing in your life that you're really liberated. Now, that's the point of the whole book of Exodus, which is why the setting up of the tabernacle is the climax of the book. Now, I'm not going to go into every detail about every aspect of the tabernacle today because I think that would be boring uh, to most of you. It would probably be boring to me. But I do want you to understand the significance of the tabernacle or the temple. I want you to understand the significance of it in sort of a 30,000-foot perspective kind of way. And, And what I want to do today is I want to ask three questions about the tabernacle. Okay? that I think will help you understand it, uh, the significance of it, just a little bit more. Let's start, I want to start with this question. First, why did the people of Israel need a tabernacle? Why did they need it to begin with? Why was it so uh, critical to their worship? Okay, so let me answer it by saying this, that every civilization, every culture up until recently had... Um, Every, every culture, every civilization throughout human history had temples or shrines or some equivalent uh, to, to a temple uh, or a shrine. They had some equivalent to that. And the reason was because every civilization up until ours today believed two things. One, they believed that there was another world. Uh, that there was another world, a supernatural world. That there was a transcendent reality. Uh, one that they couldn't see, but that existed, a transcendent reality. And then second, that there was some kind of barrier between them and the supernatural world. So they believed that there was a transcendent reality, and you're, that's too, you're, just pretend like you didn't see that slide. Close your eyes, everybody close your eyes. John, take that slide away, because I don't want you to even have seen it. Okay, good. <laughs> just pretend that you didn't see that. All right. So there was some kind of barrier between them and the supernatural world. That, there, there is a supernatural transcendent reality, and then there's a barrier between us and that supernatural reality. So there's, there's this gap that needed to be bridged. Every culture believed this. There was a, a chasm, a barrier that needed cut through in order for us to be able to, uh, to know that transcendent reality, to fellowship with that transcendent reality. Now... Of course, every civilization, every culture, you know, they, they all have different kinds of priests and different kind of rituals and different kind of beliefs, but all of them agreed on those two things. Today, we live in the first civilization in history that has said, you don't need to know anything about that other world in order to live effectively and to account for the world that you live in. First civilization in human history, ours, that says that. Everything you need to know To account for this world, we would say, has a natural, this world kind of explanation. No matter whether it's psychological, sociological, whether it's empirical in some way, everything we would argue in our culture, we would argue everything can be reduced. So we don't need tabernacles. We don't need temples, right? Now, I I, I really don't want to get too far off subject this morning, but, but I do want to say this, that the problem with that naturalistic mindset that, uh, that, that our culture has, that everything is natural and that there is no transcendent reality, 
is that if you think about it, it makes life meaningless. Now, I don't, I'm not just saying that it makes it subjectively meaningless, although it does. It also makes it objectively meaningless. Okay? Now, think about it for just a moment. Here's, here's what I mean. How do you decide if a tool, let's say, how do you decide if a tool is a good tool or a bad tool? Like, like you have to know what it was built for to be able to decide whether it's a good tool or a bad tool, right? Because if you don't know what it's built for, you might take a hammer and try to eat chili with it. And that, it's not very good at eating chili, uh, you know, at trying to eat chili with. A hammer's horrible for that, but it's, but it's really good at pounding nails. But you, unless you know what the tool was designed for, you really don't know whether it's a good tool or a bad tool. It's impossible to say whether it's good or bad or whether there's a right way to use it or a wrong way to use it if there is no designer. You understand what I'm saying? It's impossible. Okay. In the same way, if there is no designer for humanity, how can you say that any action is good or bad? Now, th- think about that. How, how, would you say, how could you say, for instance, if there is no designer, how could you say that trampling on human rights is wrong? How could you say that it's wrong to oppress people? How could you ever say that it's wrong to treat women as anything more than sexual objects? How could you say that it's wrong to pay women less than it is than, than you pay them to, for a man to do a job? How, how could you ever say that? How, how, to say that it's wrong to do those things is to just pull something out of the air and just to say, well, you know, my view of what's right and wrong is more important than your view. You're the one doing the oppressing. My view is that you're, you're wrong. And my view is more important than yours. But how could you ever say that my view is more important than your view? How could you do that? You can't do that. You see, it's, that's just random. As much as our culture likes to say that we believe in this naturalistic approach to life and that we don't believe that there is any transcendent reality, we don't live that way. We live like there is a transcendent reality. Our culture is very inconsistent about this because if you think about it, our culture is constantly proclaiming that somebody's right and somebody's wrong and somebody is always claiming that someone's rights are being violated and that it's wrong. You, know, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, how do they know that it's wrong? There has to be some transcendent reality to believe that there is something like right and wrong. There has to be a designer for all of that. And so we need, we need a temple. Um, That's why Israel needed a temple. Now you can put that slide back up. And now those of you who saw it a moment ago can pretend like you didn't see it before, but now you see it. Israel needed a temple because there is a transcendent reality. That's why they needed a temple. There was glory out there somewhere. And Israel needed a temple, and that's why we needed, it's why, it's why humanity needed a temple. It's why we need a temple now. Now, the second question that I want to ask this morning about this whole tabernacle temple thing is how does the tabernacle work? Okay, so we know why we need it, because there is a transcendent reality. We need some way to interact with that transcendent reality. Um, But the question now is, how does the tabernacle work? And I'll give you the answer to that question right up front, so there's no question about whether the slide's up right or not. John, you can put it up there. The tabernacle demonstrates that there is a way through the barriers to God. The tabernacle demonstrates that there is a way 
through the barriers to God. Because you remember, every culture believed that there is a transcendent reality, but that there are barriers between humanity and that transcendent reality. The temple, the tabernacle, demonstrates there is a way through those barriers to God. Now, let me explain what I mean. In fact, I'm going to put up a... Here's a picture of what the tabernacle uh, looked like. And what you can see in this, you know, in this picture is that there, it consisted of a rectangular curtain that, that created kind of a courtyard that you can see where people are milling about in the middle of the courtyard. And that part did not have a roof. But in the middle of the courtyard, actually kind of toward the back, you see that there is another rectangular tent. And that was called the holy place. Okay? Now that part, as you can see, had a roof. And when you walked into it, in the front room of that, uh, of that holy place, there was bread, there was a lampstand, and uh, a few other things there. And, and then at the back of it, there was this thick, very thick veil. And behind that veil was the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. So you got the large courtyard. Now, John, if you would flip ahead to the next one. Okay, so this is, this is the holy place. This is inside that big rectangle. And very, at the very back, you see that great big veil, okay? And behind that veil was where the glory of God dwelt. The Shekinah glory is what the Old Testament called it. The glory of God dwelt back there. And only, only one person was ever allowed back there, and that was the high priest. Okay? Now, if you notice the flow of this passage that we were just looking at, notice something. This is very interesting. God insists that as Moses assembles this tabernacle, he insists that he assemble it from the inside out. So he started in the Holy of Holies, and then he works his way out. And the whole way out, there are these multiple barriers that are established between him and God. So there's, first there's the veil, okay? And then there, you saw in that room there, was, there were lampstands and bread, and, and then you go out and there's another there's another. Uh, opening that, you know, to the uh, holy place that closes. And then out there, there are, there are these basins for washing, and there's, there's a laver, and there are altars, and there are all of these barriers as you go out that are established between man and God, between Israel and God, okay? So you got all these barriers. Okay, now remember, everybody believed in two things, transcendent reality and barriers, there is a God, there is some sort of God, and there uh, is a barrier between God and humanity. Okay? And you see that represented in this tabernacle, all of these barriers. Okay? But, but, at the same time, what you see symbolized in this tabernacle is that while there are all these barriers to God, it is also abundantly clear that God is communicating through the tabernacle that he is very deliberately opening a way into his presence. So, so yes, all these barriers exist, but there is a way that God is opening into his presence. But you have to notice something. And if, if you read from Exodus 25 through Exodus 40, you would understand this. It's not just any old way. You couldn't just sashay your way 
into the presence of God any old way that you want. In other words, in other words the way back to the, to the Holy of Holies um, wasn't customizable. You couldn't make it your own way. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and I'll just kind of sashay back there. No, in fact, you need to know this. The only person that was allowed back there in the Holy of Holies, as I said a moment ago, was the high priest. But get this, the high priest had to tie a rope uh, around his ankle. It had bells on it. Because when he went back there into the Holy of Holies, get this. If he didn't do the worship right, if he didn't do do it exactly the way God told him to do it, he would die back there. And the reason the bells were on there was so that people outside could hear whether he died or not. And if he died, they had to actually, because nobody else could go back there, they had to use the rope to pull the guy out. Okay, Not customizable. <laughs> you know, that's like the opposite of customizable. You better do it the right way or you're going to die. That's it. Okay, There was a way back there, but it wasn't just any way. Like you had to get it right. Okay, You understand that? Okay, say not customizable. Say it, everybody with me. Not customizable. Okay, good. Now, God was saying then in the tabernacle that there is a way through the barriers to him, but it's very specific, very particular, not general, not customizable. Now, I would like to suggest to you this morning that regardless of what anybody says they believe about the existence of God, I would like to say to you that everyone in the world is longing to get across these barriers uh, to God. Everybody. And the Bible uses a word, it uses a word as a metaphor, uses the word thirst as a metaphor for this longing that everybody experiences to get across these barriers between me and God. One theologian, his name is James Houston, he said that the unsatisfied longing for God is what drives human beings above all else. Charles Spurgeon the great pastor um, of a century ago said this. He said that, there, that thirst is an insatiable longing after one of the essentials of life. There is no reasoning with this longing. There is no forgetting it. There is no despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. Thirst will be heard, and the whole person must yield to its power. The problem is that most people don't recognize this longing because they don't spend enough time with their parched souls to understand this thirst. You know, you get in your car. What's the first thing you do when you get in your car? Like you turn on the radio or something. You turn on music, put your earbuds in. That's not a safe thing to do, by the way. Or maybe you text. Not a safe thing to do either. But people do that, right? Because we don't want to be alone with ourselves. You get home, turn on the TV, radio, whatever you do. I mean, it's like nobody wants to sit with themselves long enough to identify, to understand what this thirst is. But it's there, and everybody experiences it. Let me give you some examples. Ever driven up to someone's house and felt envy? I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever done that? Some of you have done that. Like you drive up to their house, and it's just beautiful, and you're like, man, I envy that. That's thirst. That's longing. Ever lusted for a woman or a man? That's thirst. Ever felt an unexplained melancholy, sadness? That's thirst. Ever listened to a beautiful piece of music and been so swept up in it that when it ended, you just you were kind of frustrated, you wanted more? It just felt so, like when it ended, it just felt like, boom, it just ended. And then you're thrust back into reality. Ever felt that? That's thirst. All of those 
and more are manifestations of this thirst, this longing for something, for something beautiful, something more that you just, it's like you can't reach it on your own, but you know it's there. You just can't reach it on your own. That's the sense. That's the longing. That's the thirst. That there is some transcendent reality, but there's some barrier between me and that reality, and I, I can't bridge it on my own. That's, that's what it is. When I lived in, in Dallas uh, Troy, uh, during the 90s, the Cowboys uh, you know, won three Super Bowls, and Troy Aikman was describing one time, he was talking about the fact that the first Super Bowl that they won, you know, he was so excited. They won the thing. He, he was like, man, I've lived for this all of my life. And, and after all of the parties and after all of the glory and, and the TV interviews and, and everything that happened, he went back to his hotel room and he had this thought. Is that it? And that's that longing. That's thirst. It's like I had a taste of it, but that wasn't it. And everybody's experience, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. That's the feeling of the barriers to God. And all of us know that they exist intuitively, no matter what we say about whether we believe in the existence of God or not. We know that there are these barriers between us and this transcendent reality. But the great news of the tabernacle is that God was saying to Israel, and of course he was saying to all of humanity through the tabernacle, that there is a way past the barriers. I'm opening up a way to me, which leads to the third question that I want to ask today, and the last question, and probably the most important question today. To whom was the tabernacle pointing? That's the third question. And the answer is Jesus. Now, I want you to hear me on this. Jesus said a lot of shocking and outrageous things. But the one thing that got Jesus killed. The one thing he said that was dragged out at his trial and that led to his execution was this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 61. Don't turn there. He said, destroy this temple. Tabernacle, temple, same word, just tabernacle's a portable version of it. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And of course, the reason that the Jewish leaders were so incensed about this was that they knew Jesus was talking about himself as the fulfillment of the temple claim. You see, he was saying that not only is he God, not only is he the glory behind the veil, but he was also saying that he is the only way through the barriers to God. Which is why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall pass to the Father but through me. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that you've probably never had to do in your life, but I want you to focus on the definite article in that verse. That's a grammatical term. And the, the definite article is the word the. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say, I am a way. I am a truth and I am a life. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man shall pass to the Father uh, but through me. Do you understand? Do you see the word the? It's, that's, a very, uh, that's a very particular word. It's a very specific word. It's, it's not just any old way. It's not customizable. It says that there is one way through the barriers, and it's me, Jesus says. I am the way through the barriers to God. Now, that's not very customizable. It's 
is very particular, very specific. This is why the customized, build-my-own-God approach to life doesn't work. And it will never satisfy because the barriers between you and that God will always remain unless you go through Jesus. Now, I just want you to take a little trip with me here. Just, it, we're going to go back to the book of Genesis, but you don't have to turn there. Just, just hang with me because I promise you it's going to be worth it. God, at the, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God places Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden. And they, in, in the Garden of Eden, they experienced God personally. There was no veil between them and God, right? So they experienced God personally. The book of Genesis says that they walk with him, they talk with him there in the Garden of Eden. And because they experienced him personally, as a result of this, every other relationship that they had with everything else in the world was right. Their relationship with nature was perfect. Um, there no, they didn't spill toxic chemicals into lakes and, and rivers and stuff and you know, there were no earthquakes and there were no, uh, you know, there was no, like, pouring great slabs of concrete over beautiful pieces of nature. And, and there wasn't any of that. Their relationship with nature was perfect. And they were naked. And they were unashamed about that. And there was no fear. And there was no hiding. Um, culturally, spiritually, psychologically, socially, physically, everything in the world was the way it should be because they had that relationship with God and there was no veil, okay? Until one terrible moment. When they ate the fruit of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from, and in that moment, what was so symbolic of that, what was so significant about that, was that they they decided that instead of having this God that they would relate to personally, they decided, well, we can be our own gods. We can be our own lords. We can take the place of God. We can, we can become our own gods and make our own decisions about what's right and wrong. And at that moment, everything fell apart. And the whole world fell apart. Psychologically, the world fell apart. Culturally, the world fell apart. Socially, the world fell apart. Physically, the world fell apart fall apart. In terms of nature, the world began to fall apart. And the Bible says that God sent Adam and Eve out of that garden where he had walked with them and talked with them and where everything was perfect. He sent them out of that garden. And when he sent them out of that garden, those of you who are familiar with the story may may know this, that he put an angel at the entrance, it says, with a sword, with a sword, representing the fact that the relationship between the world that we live in now, and that world uh, was broken. Okay? Now, don't you see, don't you see that the only way back into the presence of God is to go under the sword? Someone has to pay for all the blood. Someone has to pay for all the sin. Someone has to pay for all the wrong. The only way back into that world is through the sword. That's why all of the sacrifices are are talked about in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus. There's all these descriptions, all these sacrifices of animals that had to be offered in order to worship. But all of those sacrifices all only pointed to one who would come, who would go under the sword, and would pay for all the sins of humanity. His name was Jesus. 
And when we get to the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, what you will find is that the moment of his death, all of the gospels use tabernacle, temple imagery to explain the significance of his death, the, momentous, the, the momentousness of what has happened. And we can't understand the momentousness of what has happened at the cross unless we understand the promise of the tabernacle. When Jesus died on the cross, some of you will remember this. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what his last words were? Do you remember? Three words. It is finished. Do you remember that? It is finished. He breathed, and then he breathed his last. It is finished. Look back at verse 33 in this passage. Verse 33. Moses is sitting, setting up the courtyard. Okay? It said, Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the tent entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. When Jesus said, it is finished, what he's saying is, now it's when he was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished, what he was saying was, now it's really finished. I have completed the way in. I have cut the path through all of the barriers to God. I have done it. I have built the real pathway of which Moses was just creating symbols that ultimately pointed to me. And the minute that he said, it is finished, do you know what happened? Any of you guys remember this? What was the thing that, sep- that ultimately separated man and God in the tabernacle? You remember? It was called, it was called there, there was that inner sanctum. It was called the Holy of Holies. And what was there? What, what prevented them from getting back there? Big, thick veil. That's right. At the moment that Jesus said, it is finished, the veil inside the temple in Jerusalem that separated the glory of God from humanity was ripped from top to bottom, not by anybody because it was too thick. It was ripped from top to bottom by two big invisible hands as if God were saying, we won't be needing this anymore. Here in the last chapter of the book of Exodus, the place that I don't think you would ever expect to find the gospel, you find the consistency of the Bible's message, the beauty of the gospel, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the last place that you would expect to find it, at the tabernacle. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible's message is inconsistent, that there's an Old Testament God who's different than the New Testament God. Same God, same message, beginning to end. It's all about Jesus. Every part of it. Now, last thing, and then I promise I'm done. What does it all mean? Here's what it means. I want you to get this. Hear me very carefully on this. If you don't hear anything else I've said today, hear this. Christians are not nice people who have been reformed through moral effort. If we were, we wouldn't need all of this. Christians aren't nice people who've been reformed by trying to be good people. Through following a law, following a code. That's not what Christians are. That may be what uh, Muslims are. That may be what Mormons are. Um, that may be what Jehovah's Witnesses are. But it's not what Christians are. Christians are radically regenerated at the root people. Because what once dwelled behind the veil, now through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that 
That Shekinah glory that shook mountains and that uh, was so traumatic if you saw it, the people would die. That now dwells in us. That's what's changed Christians. That's what Christians are. And I say this because I want you to understand that if you're trying to find your own way across the barriers to God, whatever that way may be, you will never find your way through the barriers. You must That's why we say on our banners around the room, the first thing that we say is you must believe. You must believe on Christ. You cannot customize God. Whatever your way that you think you're going to get through those barriers to God is, you will not get there. You will not get through there through moral effort. You won't get there by trying to be a good person. It won't happen. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected is the only specific particular way across the barriers. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall pass to the Father but through me. And that also includes that the way is not through moral effort. It is not by obeying a law, a code of conduct, or a set of regulations. It is through belief in Him and Him crucified. Then and only then will you find the thirst that you have in your soul Ultimately, satisfied. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we can't even begin to understand or explain all that you did for us on the cross. But in our limited capacity, we try to understand. And Lord, As a limited and frail human being, I can't even convey it uh, to these people. But Lord, by the power of your Spirit, would you take the Scriptures and would you make, would you just enlighten their minds, enlighten their souls, and would you open their hearts? And if there are people here today that are in this room that have been trying by moral effort to get across the barriers to you, Lord, would you convict them right now? Would you say all of your goodness, would would you just proclaim to them that all of their goodness is keeping them away from you. Their best prayers, their most generous acts, all of their righteousness is keeping them away from you. That only belief in you, Lord Jesus, cuts through those barriers. And then, Lord, for those that are here today, that maybe they've kind of wanted to build their own customizable God, would you show them through the scriptures, through the tabernacle, that... There is no customizable God. Uh, That they have to come to you as you are and that there is only one way and it's Jesus. And Lord, I don't say that with any pride. I don't say that with any sense of self-righteousness or even condemnation of people who have believed other things. That's not my heart. Uh, I'm a sinner. And apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ, there would be no way for me to have eternal life. And it's true for all of humanity. Not because I say it, but because your, your word says it, the scriptures. And Lord, I pray this morning that those who have believed on Christ already, at some point in their lives, that they would continue to trust in Christ. And that they would continue to repent of any other way that they try to find approval from you other than through Jesus Christ.
Him crucified and Him resurrected. And we thank You, Lord, that through Your death and through Your resurrection that now the Spirit of God lives within us and that we have become now temples of the living God. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.